Well, welcome. We sure are glad you're worshiping with us today. And if you happen to be new or visiting as those attendance binders go past, we would love uh, for you to just check that box. And that way we, we uh, can know who you are and we can reach out and just find out how we can serve you and, and uh, let you know a little bit more about Brown Corners along the way. I want to invite you to join me in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. Isaiah chapter 9. And the title of our message today is The Promise of Christmas. The promise of Christmas. And while you're finding your, your place there in Isaiah chapter 9, I just uh, want to give just a huge thanks to all those who have played a part in the Christmas program and all the time and energy and, uh, and investment uh, that went into decorating, to, to doing dishes, to preparing the meal, to uh, putting on the program. We just are uh, so thankful for all of your energy and care and, and hard work. I know a lot of people were encouraged through that time. As you uh, find your place there in, in Isaiah chapter 9, as I was thinking about this, this promise that we're going to read about, you know, that, that it's amazing how your kids, you know, you can ask them to do a job to take out the trash. Hey, after dinner, I'd like you to take out the trash. And there's, there's not a chance that they're going to remember from the time they sat down to have dinner to the time that dinner is finished. There's not a chance they're going to remember that you asked them to take out the trash. That's going to be gone from their mind. It's amazing how short-term uh, memory can, can work when it comes to chores. But you know, if, you, if, if you've promised something that they anticipate, even something as simple as, hey, tonight we're going to go out for pizza, or, hey, um, if you have good grades at the end of the semester, I'm going to take you to this cool event. It's amazing how well their memory works. You throw in that word promise, and it's something they're looking forward to, the, the memory all of a sudden locks in, and it's there. You know? And, and as, I, as, I read, as I read this passage, and as I read some of the promises of the coming Messiah, I wonder what the Israelites were thinking as they heard the, the, the word of God, they heard the voice of God through the prophets. And in a place like this, here in, in, in Isaiah 9, 1 begins this way. It says, Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea. The, the, the time in which, the time of which Isaiah speaks is a time of an indeterminate time in the future. And he says, what I'm about to say to you, this is what God is going to do in the future. And I wonder how, how much their hearts locked down on these promises that we're about to read. I wonder how, how clearly it hung before their eyes as years, as decades, as centuries even passed while they were waiting for the fulfillment. The thing we learn about God in Scripture is that He always keeps His word. When God speaks, well, He does what He says. And so He's going to make a promise here in these verses. And so would you follow along as we read verses 2 through 7, and then we'll talk about how those promises have been fulfilled and are continuing to unfold Verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You've enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time 
and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did in the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. You will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. I want us to just look at several promises this morning that we see in this passage. And the first promise that we see is the promise of light. He says in verse 2, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. What a, what a powerful and beautiful word. We see this fulfilled in Matthew chapter 4 in speaking of Jesus. What imaginable darkness they walked in during those days. One writer says that at this point in Israel's history, the darkness of Israel and Judah was almost complete. Back in chapter 2, Isaiah had already referred to a catalog of glooms. Chapter 2, he speaks of superstitions um, and materialism idolatry and arrogance. In chapter 3, lack of good leadership and social disintegration, sensuality, and in chapter 5 of alcoholism. The final years of Israel's monarchy it was a period of political uncertainty. Kings like Shalom and Menahem were quickly assassinated. We don't even remember these names because they came and went so quickly. Religion in those days was synchronistic, syncretistic. It was a mixture of, of not only a little bit of their Jewish faith, but pulling from the lands and the idols of the, the surrounding cultures, the Canaanites, the Assyrians, the Egyptians. Cultic prostitution was practiced at various shrines to please the appetites of the gods. Children were even being sacrificed to Moloch, the god of the Ammonites. Not only did Samaria, that is the northern kingdom, do these things, but Judah did as well. Even the kings got involved in this abhorrent practice. These were dark, dark days indeed for God's people. Even in chapter 8, verse 17, Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob. Not only was there darkness in the land, spiritual darkness, but even God had, had separated from them because of their iniquity, because of their sin, because of their unwillingness to turn back towards Him in repentance. But here's the promise. Those who walked in this darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. Maybe you've been in a place uh, physically where there's, where there's darkness Maybe you spent a long night somewhere and just couldn't wait to see daybreak. You couldn't wait to see that first glimpse of dawn begin to arrive. Well, spiritually speaking, God's people looked 
looked intently for that break of dawn. Maybe they weren't in a place where they wanted to repent and turn from that darkness, but, but many were already seeing the fallout and the error of their ways, the fruit of living in darkness. You know, God has called each and every one of us from the darkness and into the light. I hope that you see this Christmas season, Jesus is the fulfillment of this, the light of the world has shined into the darkness. I hope that God's light has broken through into your heart. And I hope that if that's the case, that you're praying and actively seeking for God's light to break through into the hearts of those who are part of your life who, well, the dawn hasn't shown yet in their hearts and lives. Jesus is the great light who breaks into the darkness. The second promise that we see in this passage is the promise of joy. In verse 3, he says, You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. He picks two illustrations that they would relative they, they would they would immediately know that, that, that would that would speak immediately to their hearts of joyful times times of harvest this was a a people who depended so heavily on a good harvest we we have a hard time even uh, even growing up in an agriculture living in an agricultural community here we have a hard time understanding just how important harvest is because we import food from all over the place but a, a poor harvest meant meant many of your family and friends would starve that year and so a good harvest was a time of celebration rejoicing another year to live a year to celebrate a reason to celebrate he understood that they knew the kind of joy that took place at harvest time, or even he, he even mentions the joy of dividing spoils, winning a victory, and being able to take the plunder of your enemies. Like, you know how you feel when all of a sudden you've gone from the brink of death to, to seeing your enemy vanquished, and then on top of that, you get their stuff, you get the leftovers of, of war? He said, think about those feelings of joy, and they're just a little inkling of this, the, the joy that's, gonna pro, that, that's promised through this coming Messiah. Those of us who have been brought from darkness into light, the controlling factor in our life should be joy, not hopeless sorrow. That's not to say that Christians don't experience times of sorrow in this world. Jesus said in this world we will have many troubles. But he tells us in Psalm 30, verse 5, that weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy is listed as one of the fruits of the Spirit of God. Because of the coming Messiah, we have the promise of joy. We're going to have more to say about this in two weeks, so I won't linger here. But thirdly, we see also the promise of freedom. As we think about the promise of Christmas, these people were hearing, by God's grace, that they would be set free. Verse 4 tells us, For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did in the day of Midian. This passage harkens back to two crucial events in Israel's past. Isaiah 
reminds God that, they've, that he has shattered their oppressive yoke. This harkens back to the deliverance of God by God of Israel from Egypt under Moses. I don't have it on the screen, but in Leviticus 26, 13, we read this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to live in freedom. This passage here in Isaiah 9, 4 refers not only to that breaking of the Egyptian yoke, but also the, the deliverance of the Midianites under Gideon. Just as you did in the days of Midian. These two events in Israel's time, looking to the past, gave the people hope that this would truly happen once for all in the future. Our God has delivered us before. We have seen His faithfulness. We've seen Him lovingly set us free by His mighty power. And He's promising here to do it again. You see, in Isaiah's time, the people had lived under the oppression of evil rulers. They'd lived under the bondage of their sin. And the slavish devotion to idolatry and immorality had weighed them down. And he was promising that one day they would be set free. You know, this morning, God wants you to hear the same truth, that he longs to set you free. He longs to release you from captivity. Are you in bondage to sin? He longs to lift the burdens that are weighing down, our Lord, that are weighing you down. Our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, once told us, welcomed us with these words, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. This is the promise that God was holding out to his people, that one day, you will be set free in far greater ways than they could ever imagine. That promise has found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And we no longer have to live as slaves. What a precious, precious promise. The fourth promise in this passage is the promise of peace. In verse 5, we read, for every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Wow. You see, these men and women understood this powerful imagery. They had seen fighting. They had been attacked. They, they knew what it was like to be sieged, to be holed up in your city while the enemy cuts off supplies and begins to choke the life out of you. They understood that. They knew battle. In fact, those living in Isaiah's time had known very few years of peace. Those of us who haven't lived in a war-torn country, it's hard for us to really relate, to, to connect to this. They had battle garments that they wore. And what he's saying here is there'll be a day when you don't need these anymore. You can use them as fuel, these battle clothes, because there will be peace, a beautiful and unending peace. Men and women here knew just how awful war could be. 
I was listening to a, a podcast this week that was describing some of the battles of the Revolutionary War and just sort of brought you into just how, how devastating this was, even for families, because even, you know, we, we saw this happen during the Civil War, but even during the Revolutionary War, there were a lot of families that were divided. There were those loyalists who still felt an allegiance to the king and felt like they should fight for Britain. And then there were, there were those, even next-door neighbors and family members, who, who were on the patriot side of the cause. And I was reading about this, or listening uh, uh, regarding this battle uh, called King's Mountain. I believe it was in Georgia. And it was... It was uh, uh, there was militia and, again, family members, friends on both sides of this battle. And it was fierce. And it was, it was, there was just some serious guerrilla warfare going on. And, and in this particular battle, the, the, the colonists emerged victorious. And, and the author of the podcast said, I just want you to know just how, how seriously this rent communities apart. He said there was a scene where a man by the, a loyalist by the name of Branson had been severely wounded and, and was dying there on the battlefield. And he saw his brother-in-law who was, who was with the Patriots and he called out to him and he asked him for help, for him to come to his aid as he's dying. And his own brother-in-law, his own flesh and blood turned to him and he said, no, Look to your loyalist friends for help. Can't even imagine that kind of animosity, that kind of hatred, as you're willing to let a family member bleed out because of the division caused by warfare. And Isaiah here is saying, listen, all that ugliness of battle, all that, that rents families and nations apart, he said it's all going to be done away with. All your armor all your weapons, you're going to be able to cast them into the fire as a result of our victorious coming king. What a promise. But you know, the promise extends even beyond national and world peace. It extends even to our own hearts. See, once again, we're, we're told that one of the fruit of the Spirit is peace. That, we're told in Romans chapter 5 that, that God has made peace with us. There's no longer enmity. There's no longer division between us and God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But he longs for that peace to reign in our hearts. Not for us to live tumultuous lives full of turmoil and agony and anxiety. He longs to set us free through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the victory that Jesus has won on the cross. We see fifthly here the promise of a king. And this is where it really brings into focus the, the meaning of the passage. And the focus of, of who is to initiate all of these good promises. They're not just promises that God's going to throw out there one day. But they actually come to culmination in this coming king. And so that's why he starts the verse 6 like he does. For, or because, here's, here's how this will take place. Here's how all these promises will be fulfilled. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. 
must have been an interesting phrase for God's people to read as they were encountering this prophecy. You could see their heart begin to well with joy at all that he said in verses 2 through 5. A light coming into the darkness, a joy, a time of peace and prosperity. And then he says, for a child will be born. (laughs) That must have confounded them to a great degree. It's not typically from children that we look to for deliverance and, and military victory. I'm sure that as they read this, they thought, a, a child will be born? What does a child have to do? This? What, what can a child do? God did not send a powerful military leader to vanquish his foes. He did not send a handsome, regal king who would build a beautifully, beautiful earthly kingdom. He sent a child into this world. Isn't it just like God to confound the wisdom of man? Sometimes we scratch our heads and wonder what God is doing. God longs for us to trust in Him, to believe that He is the one working and acting. None of this could have come about by human wisdom or power or might. It says that the government will be on His shoulders. One writer says, Upon this child, the government with all of its responsibility lies. Like a burden, it rests upon His shoulders. Isaiah earlier had invaded against child rulers, and one of the punishments that was to come upon Judah was that children would be its princes. Here, however, not only is a child to be the ruler, but the entire responsibility for the good administration of the government is said to rest upon his shoulders. The child is to be a king, a ruler, and a sovereign. But this child also comes not only as the ruler, but he comes as the Messiah. These beautiful names of description tell us so much about what Jesus would be like. A wonderful counselor. Literally, the Hebrew reads, wonder of a counselor. This speaks of God's great might. In Isaiah 28, 29, it says he is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. You know, you and I might put our foot, feet in our mouths sometimes. Often we're at a loss for words. We may, without intending to, even give bad advice or poor counsel, but not Jesus. His counsel is always wise, always exactly what we need, whether we know it or not, whether we believe it or not. He is a wonderful counselor. Derek Thomas has said the word wonder is generally attributed in the Old Testament to a work of God, something that God has accomplished, something he's done. It's sometimes used of works performed of man, but it's generally reserved for those miracles and wonders performed by God, such as the plagues in Egypt, the conquest of Canaan, the crossing of the Jordan, and the miracles in the wilderness. Miriam and Moses sang this song after crossing the Red Sea. In Exodus 15, 11, Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered in praises, revered with praises, performing wonders? That's the same Hebrew word, performing wonders. Jesus is to be the counselor of wonders. I wonder this morning whether you look to him 
as your counselor, whether you look to him for your, your wisdom or whether you're trying to go through life on your own, I want you to know this morning that you have a wonderful counselor. Secondly, he's referred to as the mighty God. This innocent, precious little child was at the same time the one who spoke the fiery sun into existence. It speaks of the divinity and the power of this baby who would be born there in Bethlehem. It's a wonder that the Pharisees and religious leaders were so confused and angered when Jesus referred to himself as God, when he said things like, I and the Father are one. Before Moses was, I am. And, and, and they, they get angry. But it was foretold right here, this ruler, this coming Messiah, would be mighty God. I hope you know this morning that the one who has come to save you is mighty beyond all our imagination. Anything that we can fathom, he's mightier. He's mighty to intervene into that situation or circumstance that seems impossible in your life right now. That health issue, that relational issue, whatever it is, fill in the blank. He is the mighty God. Thirdly, we see he's the everlasting father. Now, we have to make a, a, just a brief Trinitarian distinction. He's not saying that Jesus is the Father. That's interchangeable with Jesus here. The text does not do away with the Trinity. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is not saying that the Messiah is, is the Father. Rather, it's addressing His gentle concern and His loving discipline. He comes with the attitude and the spirit of a Father. We see this set forth by the psalmist in Psalm 103, verses 11 through 14. For as, the high, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. You see, Jesus is like a father, in his a good father, in his compassionate care for his own. You think about how tenderly Jesus treated those who were hurting, those who were suffering, those who desperately needed his love. He was as a good father would be, caring for and understanding and ministering to the real needs of his children. I believe that's what this passage speaks of. And then finally, he's the prince of peace. This prince's rule would be characterized by peace. Someone has said this prince then, himself a whole personality, at one with God and his people, administers the benefits of peace and wholeness in his benign rule. This rule, however, will be unchanging in its character and peace without end in space and time forever. The fulfillment of David's promise and reflecting the holiness of God in its devotion to justice and practice and righteousness in principle. You see, this coming prince 
will institute a peace that will not end. This is where we see part of the promise that still has yet to be fulfilled. While Jesus came to bring bring peace to us, to bring peace to our lives, this world doesn't yet know peace in its fullness, but it's coming. I love how Ray Ortland summarizes each of these names that refer to Jesus. And he says, look at Jesus. As the wonderful counselor, he has the best ideas and strategies. Let's follow him. As the mighty God, he defeats his enemies easily. Let's hide behind him. As the everlasting father, he loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy him. And as the prince of peace, he reconciles sinners, us, while we were still his enemies. Let us welcome his dominion. The final promise in this passage, the sixth promise, is the promise of a kingdom. This section finishes with these words. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. This, this kingdom, one day that will come in all of its fullness, will mean that there's nothing that will not be under the control of this king. As I already mentioned, this seems confusing as we read this passage because there are some of these aspects that seem to have been accomplished. Jesus has come. This child has been born. But yet, some of these promises still await fulfillment. This kingdom is here, but yet it's not. Theologians refer to this as the already but not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. Some of it has begun to be initiated. Jesus said that in Luke eleven twenty, the kingdom has come upon you. But yet parts of this kingdom will not be seen in its fullness until Jesus returns a second time. This is laid out in Revelation eleven fifteen, when it says the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. You see, these promises can be an anchor for our soul. For those promises that have already been initiated, we can fall upon them and, and, and rest and God's proven and tried and faithful word, knowing that it's not just His word that's faithful and true, but it's Him who is faithful and true. And for the rest, well, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. We trust and we wait in eager anticipation. This Christmas, we, we have the promise we have the promise of a Messiah who has come to set us free. This wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this prince of peace, this everlasting and eternal father. His word is true. But at this Christmas time, when we look around our own lives, we look at the world around us and we recognize that not all is right, 
It's not hard to see that this, is, this ideal has not yet been fully realized. We wait with hope. We hold fast to the one who keeps his promises. We look forward to that day when we will hear the trumpet sound. And our Savior breaks through the clouds and rights every wrong, wipes away every tear. And we will see the King reigning upon his throne forever and ever. May the promises of Christmas, may the promises of Isaiah chapter 9 surround your heart and give you strength as you await the final promise of his return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a promise-keeping God. We have this promise of Christmas that reminds us of the gift that you sent in that backwater town of Bethlehem, in the most humble of ways to the simplest of families, in the most humiliating of circumstances. And this king was born, this king who's come to bring light into the darkness, this king who's come to save his people from their sins. This morning, God, we rejoice that we have been set free, that you have made peace with us through the blood of Jesus, that we no longer have to walk in darkness, we no longer have to walk in bondage, but can live in freedom. But God, for those of us who recognize this morning that, well, Not all is right in the world, whether we see that on the news or just some of us have to look at, all we have to do is look at empty seats at the table, read the report from the doctors, reflect on struggles or temptations, or you name it. And God, we recognize that we, we long to see, we cry out for the final promise to be fulfilled, for our Savior to return, for death to be vanquished, and for the promise of spending eternity with you. God, may that hope guard our hearts, strengthen our hearts. May your promises be an anchor for our souls. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and power and authority for all time, now and forever. Amen. just want to say, if you'd like prayer for any reason, there'll be a few of us up front who would love to spend some time praying with you. May God bless you this Christmas season.